The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. <coughs> okay, so good morning everyone. Nice to see you all again. <laughs> So uh, we, I think we'll just start the morning by uh, taking the eight, five and eight precepts. Uh, is that a good idea? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't really have to do it officially, but sometimes it's nice to do these things and remind ourselves of what these retreats are about, and it kind of sets the tone for the retreat a little bit. So we're going to uh, start by doing that. Is there anything else we should start with? Uh, I know you are the kind of the, the master around here. Uh, I, Could do. Do we have to? Uh, okay. Yeah. I may not just. I may just do the uh, at the very end. Uh, well, at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, we'll just start by doing the uh, eight precepts in that case. Uh, and for those of you doing five, uh, you can stop at the um, fifth one, uh, and uh, we'll kind of, kind of the third one. We'll sort of sort it out one one way or another. See what, how we can do that one. It's a bit tricky here. Yeah. Get that one right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay, so let's just uh, get going. So the way we usually do it is I will say it first, and then you can say it afterwards. I'll start with the usual homage to the, uh, to the Buddha, first of all. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang Sadananga Chami Dhammang Sadananga Chami Sangang Sadananga Chami Dutiyampi Buddhang Sadananga Chami Dutiyampi Dhammang Sadananga Chami Dutiyampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Tatiyampi Buddhang Sarananga Chami Tatiyampi Dhammang Sarananga Chami Tatiyampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Ti Saranagamanang Nitti Okay, so here comes the five slash eight precepts, uh, starting off uh, from the beginning, of course. So, Pana Tipata Ve Ratmani Sika Padang Samadhyami. Adinna Dana Ve Ratmani Sika Padang Samadhyami. Kame sumi chachara slash abramacharya vera manesi kapadang samadhyami. Excellent. That's really nice. That's, that's good. You did that very well. So, okay, here we carry on. Musavada vera manesi kapadang samadhyami. Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Vera Manisika Padang Samadhyami And now we'll carry on with the uh, eight precepts for those of you who are keeping those. Vikala Bhojana Vera Manisika Padang Samadhyami Naja Gita Vadita Visuka Dasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami
Silena sugating yanti, Silena boga, sampada, Silena nibbo ting yanti, tasma, silang visoda. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well done, everyone. It's always nice to see so many people keeping the precepts. Yeah. Even just the five is great, the eight is even more powerful. The eight precepts have this idea of renunciation included into them. That's why we keep the eight precepts. And if you are going to have some degree of success in meditation, a little bit of renunciation is actually kind of required as part of that because meditation is precisely about renouncing the world outside to move to the world within instead. So renunciation is actually a fundamental part of the Buddhist path. And you start out the Buddhist path, you start out with right view, samaditi, and the next one is Samma Sankappa. And uh, Samma Sankappa, part of that, is the idea of renouncing. Yeah? And the idea of renouncing is a very significant part of this path. And you are all renouncing a little bit. Uh, just by keeping the five precepts, you're already renouncing a bit, right? The things you can't do in your life anymore. Uh, so that's already renouncing a little bit. Uh, so it's a gradual renunciation. Renunciation sounds scary to people, but actually it's a gradual thing. Yeah? And everyone here is already doing it to some extent. So well done. You're already on the right track. Yeah? And then you kind of carry on with that. And you sometimes you do the eight precepts. Sometimes you become a monk or a nun. Only sometimes, uh, not so often. Yeah? <laughs> so And then this is kind of the gradual movement in that direction. You don't actually have to become a monk or a nun. Some lay people live... Uh, more monastic lives than the monastics do, <laughs> which is very inspiring when you see that. Anyway, so I'll um, let's um, come back, backtrack a little bit. I want to talk a little bit this morning about uh, the purpose of this retreat and also then to start off with some of the suttas that we have uh, down for this retreat uh, and discuss those in a bit of detail. Now, the name, the title for this retreat is uh, to practice like the Buddha to be. Yeah. And uh, the idea behind this title uh, is that we don't practice like the Buddha, because the Buddha is fully enlightened. The Buddha doesn't practice anymore. The Buddha, he just uh, teaches and then he enjoys his meditation, but he doesn't practice in the sense of moving towards anything. Yeah. The person who practices uh, is the Buddha before his awakening, right? Before his awakening, he's trying to find a solution to the problems of the world. uh, And all those things that he does before that time, that is what is interesting. And uh, sometimes people are surprised about this uh, because sometimes people think that the Buddha is somehow different from us, uh, that the Buddha's uh, practice uh, is not our practice, because the Buddha, he, he practiced for four incalculable eons. Isn't that right? Maybe. <laughs> it's hard to know. According to in the later Buddha's ideas, the Buddha, you know, he went to the pre, one of the previous Buddhas called Dipankara, and he bowed down. He was then known as the ascetic Sumedha, and he would bow down to the Buddha Dipankara, and he made his vow to become the Buddha in the future, and he's going to practice until he, you know, for the compassion of all the human beings and all of these kind of things. But did that really happen or did it not happen? And I am very skeptical about some of these stories. And the reason I'm skeptical is because the Buddha himself never tells this story. So even if it is true, it's irrelevant. If it was relevant, the Buddha would have taught these kind of things. He doesn't. These come out in later Buddhist scriptures. They come out in the development of the Buddha mythology, the Buddha legend, a long time afterwards. So they're not really significant. What is significant is what the Buddha himself says about his own life. That is what matters. And the reason why it matters is because the Buddha, the point of talking about his own life is to inspire us, is to make us practice in the same way that he practiced. And the problem with saying that the Buddha to be practiced for four incalculable eons, that he made a determination under the body 
previous Buddha, Dipankara. The problem with all of that is that it separates us from the Buddha. It makes the Buddha into some kind of special being who is different from us. And through that separation, actually what happens is that his path, his practice, starts to become irrelevant to us because he's a different kind of person. So all of that is actually a bad idea. It is not good to think of the Buddha like that. It is much better to think of the Buddha as a human being just like us. And this is one of the things that we will see when we start to look at these suttas. The Buddha-to-be had the same kind of problems that we have. Yes, same kind of issues. Oops, I'm eating my microphone. (laughs) The same kind of issues that we have in the world. He had defilements. He had attachments to things in the world. He had wrong view. He was, of course, special in some ways. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to become the Buddha. But essentially, he's a human being just like us. And this is what makes these autobiographical suttas where the Buddha talks about his own life so interesting. Because they point us to what we should be looking for. They point us to the path of practice that we should also be following. In fact, the Buddha does say in certain suttas that we should follow his example. He says this specifically. Yeah, and this only makes sense if the Buddha is like us. He's basically a human being. He has similar kind of problems and he wants to do things in the same kind of way. So to me, the suttas where the Buddha talks about his own past life, his life prior to his awakening, are actually really, really inspiring. And um, you may have noticed that when people talk about their own life, often things become more interesting in a sense. Yeah, one thing is kind of listening to someone talking about their own life, bringing in some of their own ideas, <coughs> looking at the struggle they had in their own life. And another thing is to look at the more theoretical Dhamma. When things are theoretical, they are a bit abstract. They don't speak to your heart in the same way. Yeah, and it's more difficult to relate to those things. But when someone talks about their own life, actually you can relate directly to what they're talking about. Because they are, it becomes more personal in a sense. It becomes more immediate and it's more easy to relate to what is personal than what is abstract and kind of constructed from a kind of artificial perspective, if you like. And so some of these teachings where the Buddha talks about his own life before his awakening, they are much, they're very personal. You feel that you're getting close to the Buddha. Yeah? And for this reason, it is particularly inspiring. And one of the things that we really should be doing on this path is to get close to the Buddha. Because getting close to the Buddha is a kind of Buddha Nusati. Buddha Nusati is the, rec- is the recollection of the Buddha, right? One of the six powerful recollections in the suttas is the recollection of the Buddha. Understanding this person, uh, trying to get a feeling for who he was. Yeah, and once you do that, once you start to get a feeling for the Buddha, it opens up the suttas, it opens up this whole path of practice uh, in a very powerful and interesting way. Uh, you get emotionally involved with it. Uh, you get... Um, I was going to say excited. Excited is the wrong word. You get inspired, right? Inspired is this feeling of, it's a positive feeling combined with the desire to follow the example and practice in the right way. So this is what we are trying to do here. We're trying to take the Buddha's practice as our example. What did the Buddha do? And then try to understand what we have to do in light of what the Buddha did. And one of the interesting things when you start to look at what the Buddha did and how he practiced uh, is that a lot of uh, how he talks about his own life uh, is about right view. Yeah, looking at things in the right way. And you can see again and again in this suttas, the Buddha shows us uh, that he too had wrong view when he started out. He looked at the world in the wrong way. Yeah, he had completely wrong ideas. And sometimes he had ideas that were completely counter to Buddhism. There's a famous story in the Gatikara Sutta. Gatikara Sutta is one of these uh, beautiful suttas in the Majjhimanikaya, middle-length sayings. Uh, It's about this uh, fellow called Gatikara who lived under the previous Buddha Kasapa. And uh, he was this incredibly virtuous lay person. Uh, Yeah, super-duper virtuous. And when you read the suttas, I think, wow. Uh, But he was like, you know, the story there is... uh, he, he had this house, it was a thatched house, 
and his old parents were living there and he was looking after his old parents uh, and uh, one day the um, uh, the buddha needed some thatch because the buddha's cutie was leaking here and so the buddha said well let's go and take the thatch off gatikara's house <laughs> kind of extraordinary isn't it just go and take it and of course if if someone went to your house and just took the roof off how would you feel you probably wouldn't be too happy, right? You'd probably say, what? You can't just take, take my roof like that. But then when Gatikara come, came back and he saw all the thatch, the thatch is like straw, right? Straw, which is used to, uh, to build the, the roof of a house. When Gatikara came back, he said, well, what happened to my straw? And the, they said, oh, the, Buddha, you know, the, the Sangha took it to help the Buddha. And then he was so happy. He said, wow, thank you so much for taking the straw off my house uh, to support the Buddha. And that is such a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's this idea that you are generous to the point of just being willing to give up everything. And this is kind of the idea that when someone who is really, you know, is in need of something, and they, you have kind of probably had made an offer to the Sangha already. That's probably the reality of it. But this feeling that it's your things are being used for a good purpose, for a wholesome purpose, gives you that incredible happiness on the path. It's a beautiful thing, yeah. And I, you know, when I come back to my room and there's nothing left inside my room over there, everything is gone. How will I feel? Will I be able to say, yay, Ajahn Saruna took it all for the good purpose of the Sangha. Wow, I'm so lucky. I hope I'm able to say that. If I'm not, I'm not living up to the example of the Buddha. But there's something very, very, very beautiful about that. Yeah, this is how our hearts should really incline. Anyway, so this is completely beside the point of what I want to talk about. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, so Gatikara, he had a friend. This friend was called Jotipala. Huh? And Jotipala is the previous life of our Buddha, Gautama. And uh, he was completely anti-Buddhist in this sutta. Yeah, he was like, ah, these shaveling ascetics here, yeah, what do they know? He was a proud Brahmin at that time. Uh, yeah, they didn't know anything. Yeah. And they're kind of dismissing the Buddha as being some, something completely, uh, uh, you know, irrelevant or whatever. Yeah. And so that was... Uh, the Buddha to be in the very recent life before the present one. He was completely dismissive of Buddhism. He had no ideas about these things. Uh, and so he had very strong wrong view. He didn't understand what was really valuable in the world. Uh, he wasn't able to recognize the Buddhist teachings uh, when it was right there in his face. Uh, yeah, He just didn't understand that this was powerful. Uh, and uh, this is one of the difficulties in the world, is actually being able to recognize these teachings for what they are. It is very hard very often. Uh, so when people tell you in the present day the Dhamma is deteriorating, everything is going downhill, best to just to wait for the Buddha Maitreya to come, that's when we will kind of practice. You won't even be able to recognize the Buddha Maitreya when you see him. You'll think, yeah, yeah, some kind of ascetic. Yeah, okay, I'm going to go back to my sensual pleasures. Thank you very much. That's usually what happens. So uh, for this reason, uh, the idea of... Uh, right view uh, yeah right at the very beginning here is so important so significant uh, it is the first factor of the noble eightfold path uh, it is that which makes the noble eightfold path work uh, all the other factors are a consequence of right view without that right view nothing really works properly uh. <coughs> so we need to establish that, that right view we need to make it as powerful in our life as we possibly can. Right view is not something that you either have or don't have. Right view is something you develop, it's something that you um, cultivate over time and gradually, gradually, gradually your view gets aligned with reality. Your view gets aligned with the way the Buddha saw the world. It takes time. You have to come back to the suttas again and again and again. Listen to good Dhamma talks again and again. Slowly, slowly, slowly your view of the world changes and it, and it starts to accord with the nature of reality or the nature of the way the Buddha talked these things. So don't underestimate the importance of this. This is one of the most important things we can do because it supercharges the Buddhist path. It makes it possible for us to actually practice this path properly. So the cultivation of right view, the cultivation of perceptions that align with that right view is something we can do almost all the time. 
Yeah, even in ordinary life, we can cultivate these right views when we are dealing with people, when we are dealing with situations that are difficult, when we're dealing with the changing nature of things all the time. These are reminders of the nature of the world. There's a beautiful teaching by Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Brahm's teacher, and uh, Ajahn Brahm, of course, being both Ajahn Nisarunos and my teacher. And uh, he was very powerful individual, this Ajahn Shah. Yeah, Ajahn Brahm always talks about him in kind of with Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm is not the kind of person who is uh, struck by awe very often, but Ajahn Shah is one of the people he really praises as being special. Uh, and uh, Ajahn Shah had this beautiful saying that uh, everything teaches you her. Uh, yeah, everything teaches you her. Uh. So are you able uh, to allow everything to teach you her? Uh, are you able to look at the things around you and take on board the message that is there in everything around you? Are you able to do that? If you're able to do that, it means that there is no time in your life that is wasted. Because every time in your life, as you're sitting right here, as you go about having your lunch afterward, as you, what happens when you go back home in the evening, come again, everything you're doing has the potential to teach you because life is full of lessons all the time. So if we apply the Buddha's message to our ordinary experience of the world, we are developing right view continuously, perceiving things in the right way continuously. And this is ideally what we want to do because the more we do that, the more we use every opportunity, we're not wasting any time. So easy to waste time in this life. So easy to be sidetracked by all kinds of things. Uh, yeah, No, withdraw from that, that uh, cluttering of the mind, all the silly things that we do. Use every opportunity instead uh, to align your view, your perceptions with the nature of the world. Uh, and it is often very simple. Yeah, the simple things like noticing the dukkha of things, the impermanence of things, uh, how the world is unreliable, how how we should look out and with compassion and kindness for the people around us because they don't really know what they're doing. All of these things are as a continuous possibility of aligning our view with the view of the world. No, with the view of the Buddha. <laughs> the view of, forget about the view of the world. That is usually wrong. Yeah. So um, this is what this is about then. This is what I want to start off with. I want to look at some of the suttas where the Buddha to be is looking at the world in a way to try to see the world improperly. This is the starting point of these suttas. And this is why I have started with the very famous Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the Sutta on the Noble Search, because this Sutta is precisely the Buddhas giving rise to right view, starting to see the world in the right way. This is what this really is about. And then the consequent going forth and then finding the solution to the problems of life through that going forth, through becoming a monk, essentially. Um, so that is the starting point. And then, of course, I'm going to try to look at the whole path, the whole Noble Eightfold Path, through that lens of what the Buddha to be practiced. That's kind of the idea behind this. So, um, okay, so let's, uh, let's get started on these uh, suttas. Um, Okay, so this um, uh, sutta is uh, found, the uh, first one here, in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. It is known as the Noble Search, Arya Pariyasana. Pariyasana is the search, uh, Arya is noble. Uh, it's already a good name for the sutta, isn't it? A noble Search. Uh, it's kind of something beautiful about that. Uh, There's that very simple phrase. Uh, and uh, it's a very... Um, immediate translation of the Pali. The Pali basically means that uh, yeah, Arya is noble uh, and Pariyasana is to search, to look out for. So it's a very, very good and appropriate translation. I think you're getting your money's worth with that translation. Huh? <laughs> it's important to get your money's worth with translations. Right? Sometimes you feel a bit dubious about the translation. Okay, this is a bit dodgy. Not sure if this person really has got this right. Uh, 
And sometimes it's fascinating, even the best translators of the world, sometimes they don't necessarily always get it right. Everyone makes mistakes. So it's important to be alert to what actually is going on. But um, the idea of the noble search, yeah, remember that we are all searching in a sense. Yeah, searching in life, the whole idea that when we crave and when we desire, uh, is really about a search. We're looking for something in the world to make our life satisfactory, uh, to find contentment, to find meaning, to overcome the problems of life, to find happiness. Uh, yeah, our life is geared towards that. That is why we crave. Uh, that's why we desire. That's why we're always doing things in life. Uh, we are motivated to do things. Uh, why are you here? Why am I here? Why is anyone doing anything at all? It's this search for something in the world. Uh, but uh, that search can be directed well or it can be directed badly. Yeah, directed badly means that you're not really finding that happiness that you're looking for. You're not really finding that satisfaction. You're not really finding the end of the problems. Instead, you're doing the opposite. You're compounding the problem very often, making it worse. If you're searching in the wrong place, what you actually find is more dukkha, more suffering here. You are trying to pursue happiness, but you find the opposite. And this is almost like a tragedy in a sense. So many people in the world, everyone really wants happiness. But actually, in that search for happiness for themselves, what they discover instead is suffering. They are creating suffering in their very search for happiness. Isn't that kind of paradoxical in a sense? And it's almost a bit... Sad. You want to. You get compassion when you see that. You want to say, "I'm going to help these people." Look over here. You just have to shift your attention slightly in a different direction, and suddenly, by shifting your attention slightly uh, from where you used to have it, you start to look for happiness, real happiness, uh, instead of suffering in life. Uh, and this is kind of the compassion of the Buddha. Huh? He's seeing humanity walking in the wrong way here, walking towards suffering when actually what they really want is satisfaction, happiness. Uh, Look at it this way instead. And sometimes it's just a tiny shift in attention that is required. It's remarkable. That tiny shift in attention can make all the difference between searching for suffering and searching for happiness. So the noble search then, the ignoble search, is where we want happiness, we want satisfaction, but actually what we are achieving is the opposite. We're looking in the wrong place. The noble search is where we start to have right view. We start to look at the world in the right way and we are finding the solution. Yeah, we're actually finding the root causes of the problem and solving that and then heading in the right direction. This is the noble search. So it is noble because we're actually finding real solutions. It's also noble because this noble search implies good qualities of the heart. It implies a degree of purity. Yeah, there's something inside of you which is good and wholesome. And you know that. You can look inside of you and you can feel that sometimes your mind is like low, defiled, a bit dirty perhaps, and it feels kind of yucky. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of yuckiness of the mind. Yeah, the yucky mind and then the pure mind. And it, you know that your mind is kind of low. It is not really noble at that time. And then there are times when your mind feels pure, you feel kind, you feel generous, you feel good qualities within. And you know that this is a no more, maybe not the highest nobility yet, but it's a degree of nobility about that mind. You can almost feel it. Yeah, there's something, um, something very wholesome about that kind of mind state. Yeah, skillful. And you know that that is the case. So when you see that, you know that you're on the wrong right track. So it is the noble search, moving towards a noble goal, coming from motivated by noble qualities within her. So um, let's see what the Buddha has to say about this. So it starts off here. This is the Buddha speaking here. And... Um, one of the things that is found in this sutta, I was just teaching this particular sutta at Newbury Monastery because they said, oh, can't you just do some of the suttas on this retreat? And so I said, sure, let's do that. And it actually starts off just before this. Here it begins with good mendicants. It is appropriate, etc. But before that, it has the Buddha 
uh, all these monks and nuns and maybe lay people, I think mostly monks, they are assembled in this hall. Uh, it's called the um, Upatana Sala, and it's a kind of an assembly hall. Uh, and all the monks are inside, and they're having a discussion. Yeah, they, they are talking about, uh, and in this case, they're talking about the qualities of the Buddha himself. Uh, and then the Buddha comes. Uh, yeah, He comes from somewhere else, uh, and he stands outside, uh, and he waits for the monks to finish their discussion before he does anything. Yeah, he's kind of standing outside the hall, waiting outside the door, listening in. Okay, they're discussing. Okay, I shouldn't disturb them. That's kind of extraordinary. This is the Buddha, right? This is the greatest spiritual master in human recorded human history. This is not just any old ordinary person. But he's more polite than most ordinary people. Isn't that kind of, most people said, yeah, yeah, okay, I don't care. They have, if you have a lot of ego, you think, yeah, I can just walk in there yeah, because I'm important. This kind of, t- it's like this idea of entitlement. Yeah, I'm entitled to just walk in. But the Buddha, no, no sense of entitlement. No sense that he is special. The Buddha waits outside. And I, you know, if you look at the world of Buddhism, you look at how most monks and monastics behave. It's sometimes people, monks behave as if they own the entire world. Yeah, this is my world. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> sometimes it's like that. But sometimes we can take the Buddha as a beautiful example of appropriate behavior. The Buddha is more polite and very, very appropriate in his behavior. So he waits outside. Yeah, And then when he hears that the monks have finished inside, then he coughs. Yeah, he clears his throat <clears throat> just to make his presence known so that they don't kind of get surprised when he comes in there. This is another beautiful thing about how we're supposed to do things on the Buddhist path. We're supposed to be doing things in a way that we don't startle people. Yeah, We kind of do things in a polite way. Yeah? So you cough. And monastics, we do, do this all the time. For example, if you approach someone else's kuti in the monastery, you don't just walk and knock on the door. Yeah? As you approach the kuti, the appropriate manner is to cough and clear your throat so people know that you are approaching. They can get ready to receive you. Maybe they are meditating or maybe they're doing something or whatever. So this is actually what we do in the present day in monasteries. When you approach a kuti, you do cough. Or even here, yeah, it's kind of cute, isn't it? And, and even here, when we are staying here, we are, the way we approach each other is usually in a respectful and kind way. And you make your presence known in this way. The Buddha, always leading by example, very polite. There's nothing, he doesn't see himself as special. He doesn't have an ego, right? So he just uh, does what is appropriate. And then when he uh, clears his throat, then the monks say, oh, uh, the Buddha must have arrived. And then they, of course, they open the door, they invite him in. The Buddha sits down, and the first thing he asks them is, well, what are you talking about? Yeah, he doesn't say, okay, I'll give, I'll give you a talk. <laughs> he says, now what are you talking about in here? And then they, you know, and this is how, it, uh, how this kind of conversation comes about. Uh, it's very interesting when you see the Buddha in this way, because you get the feeling of the Buddha as one of us, uh, one who behaves like us, but just a little bit better than everyone else. Uh, extra kind of politeness, extra kindness and care all the way around. Uh, but he's one of us. Uh, He's not something special, not something beyond ordinary human beings. Uh, he's someone you can approach, uh, someone you can talk to, someone you can have a conversation with, uh, someone you feel at ease with when you see them because he's polite and kind in this way. Uh. Yeah, he's not someone elevated, someone you are f- afraid of. Most people, if you ask them, what would it like to be to meet the Buddha? They will say, oh, I don't want to meet the Buddha, too, too frightening, yeah, too much, too much power. Actually, no, it's not like that. Uh, Meeting the Buddha is something easy, something nice, something pleasant. Uh, Someone who has compassion and kindness for you. Someone who is quite ordinary in many ways. Uh, Yeah, he's a person like everyone else. Uh, And meeting the Buddha would be something beautiful, uh, not something scary. uh. And so this is kind of the idea by reading the suttas in this way, seeing the humanity of the Buddha. uh, yeah, this is kind of the point of this, so that we can approach the Buddha, read the suttas with an open mind and an open heart to take on board these teachings in a deeper way than we ordinarily do. So after the um, mendicants, the mendicants are the monastics, yeah, the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis, after they have said what they are talking about, oh, we were talking about uh, uh, you know, um, the Buddha's qualities, 
Then the Buddha replies, this is his reply, he says, good mendicants, it is appropriate for gentlemen like you who have gone forth in faith from the lay life to homelessness to sit together and talk about the teaching. When you're sitting together, you should do one of two things, discuss the teaching or keep noble silence. So, um, it is appropriate for gentlemen like you. I don't know if the Buddha would use that word gentleman. It sounds a little bit uh, strange, but it's actually not a bad translation, to be honest. Because uh, uh, the idea here is that uh, gentleman, the Pali word is kula, kula putta, and uh, kula putta is, uh, means someone who is a, a, mem- a son of a family. Yeah, a son of the families, and these were the families in ancient India were very large families. Uh, just like until recently, everyone around the world lived in large families. Yeah, all the generations living together, uh, maybe some workers were living in there with large households. It was the common thing. Yeah. And these households would have like a uh, someone who was the head of that household, and usually that would be the oldest male member, unless he got too old, in which the son would take over. Yeah, that's usually how this household worked. And so these would be like the establishment in ancient India. These were the people who ran society effectively. They would have a business, or they would. Uh, be farmers or they would be cattle breeders or whatever and this was kind of the establishment so these were like the gentle people the gentlemen and the gentle women of that time the leaders of the households and that's why he translates it in this way it actually is appropriate to translate it in this way although in the kind of in the mouth of the buddha it sounds a little bit strange perhaps so it is appropriate for gentlemen like you who have gone forth out of faith. Yeah, this idea of going forth out of faith is very important. It is when you go forth out of faith that this is appropriate. Not for any other reason of going forth. Going forth should always happen out of faith and confidence in the Dhamma and the Buddha. This word faith is very significant. Sadda, I'll probably talk about that later on, what that actually means more specifically but it's one of these very fundamental qualities on the Buddhist path. Everything should really be driven and uh, motivated by faith. Faith is the, such an important thing. Yeah? And uh, you are motivated by faith to go forth from the lay life to homelessness. Uh, yeah, this is kind of the ideal of monastics, to live a homeless kind of life. Uh, and uh, when you, uh, and uh, there's some beautiful sayings in the suttas why that homelessness is so important. Uh, uh, maybe we'll come back to that later on. Uh, uh, you should sit together and talk about the teaching. Yeah? You see this in many places in the suttas, the monastics coming together, discussing the teaching is quite common, so they understand what it is about. Uh, yeah, um, And uh, so that's kind of what we are doing now as well. We're coming together discussing the teaching of the Buddha. Uh, and you should do one of two things, discuss the teaching or keep noble silence. Now, the idea of noble silence is a, it's kind of a noble idea in its own right, not the idea of noble silence. And noble silence, it's important to kind of get this right. Yeah? Silence is noble when it leads to positive results. Yeah, it is noble when it, again, like I said before, the whole purpose of the noble search is a search for something higher, something satisfying, something that leads to contentment and happiness. Noble silence should be the same. It is a silence that leads to something positive. So if you are keeping silence on this retreat, make sure you keep silence for the right reason, because it feels good because it enhances your meditation experience, uh, because it enables you to listen to the teachings better. Uh, that is the right kind of noble silence. Uh, if you find that silence seems oppressive to you, uh, that you can't really enjoy it, uh, then it is not really noble silence anymore, uh, because it doesn't lead to good qualities. Uh, so don't allow the silence or the precepts or whatever you're doing on this retreat to be oppressive. Uh, if it feels oppressive, it doesn't lead to good mental qualities. So if it feels oppressive, don't keep noble silence. 
don't disturb others either, because that would all, that would be bad karma. Yeah, that would be even worse. Uh, so if you disturb, yeah, I need to talk. So you're going to go around talking to everyone. That's not really <laughs> appropriate either. So you, but then you do what is required so that you can feel at ease. But that is a little bit of silence. Yeah. But this is an important point because sometimes we think if I just force myself to be silent, then I'm having noble signs. Not really. Yeah. It should be fairly natural. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Yeah. But uh, ideally, after a while, you enjoy silence. You enjoy just kind of being with your fellow uh, Buddhists here in silence. Because being with other people in silence is something beautiful about that. Uh, the compulsion that we have to always talk with each other is kind of a slightly crazy thing, you know? We're all a little bit crazy here. You know what I mean? Do you? <laughs> we all, it's kind of this life yeah, that we are. We have this kind of habits and talking to each other when we are together is kind of a habit. And if we don't talk, we feel kind of uncomfortable about that. Actually, no, feel comfortable about being silent. That's where we should feel comfortable. We should feel uncomfortable about talking too much. Yeah, why? Because talking is just disturbing. A lot of the things we say are not really worthwhile saying anyway here. So learn the comfort of being silent with each other. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah? It's like you see an old couple who have been together their whole life. Uh, they don't talk so much anymore because they're comfortable in each other's company. Yeah? Because you've been together for a long time. Uh, there's nothing you have to do. It's like monks when they live together for a long time also often don't have to talk very much. Uh, I often sit next to Ajahn Brahm uh, at Bodhinyana Monastery in Perth. Uh, much of the time we don't say anything to each other. We just sit there yeah, and, and that's fine. Why? Because that is a more comfortable abiding than having to talk all the time. If there is something to be said, we say it and then we stop. This is what is meant by noble silence. It is a silence that leads to good qualities. It is not a silence that is oppressive and uncomfortable. And then, of course, as you do your meditation practice, that silence becomes more profound. It becomes not just an external silence that we have, how we deal with other people, but it's also an inner silence, a silence where the mind is quiet. And that quietness of the mind has many stages to it, starting off by just the ordinary piece of meditation, but then going deeper and deeper and deeper until you attain the powerful states of deep meditation, the samadhi, the jhanas, and these kind of things. Yeah? And that is the real noble silence, when it's completely, the mind is silent, the speech has become silent a long time ago. That is uh, the, the full noble silence on the Buddhist path. So make it noble, don't make it oppressive. One of the, I think, the drawbacks with many, many Buddhist teachings in the world is that we don't often talk enough about how to do these things in the right way. Yeah? We talk about sitting down cross-legged and watching the breath, uh, but that is not enough instruction. Uh, it is about how you sit down cross-legged, the idea of being at ease, of being comfortable, being able to let go of the body. Uh, watching your breath, yes, but at the right time, when you are ready, when the mindfulness has, give, has already uh, arisen. Uh, um, being, doing meditation practice with the right kind of attitude so you can be at ease, so you can enjoy these things. Uh, the whole Buddhist path is geared towards enjoying what is going on, uh, overcoming suffering, finding a sense of ease, comfortableness, and all of these kind of things. Uh, that it is what, what is, it really is geared towards. Uh, so be careful if you start to feel uncomfortable or tense or not right. Uh, probably you are on the wrong track already. Uh. It is not about kind of forcing yourself through discomfort and ill being ill at ease. Because if you do that, actually, it is not going to give any results. The Buddhist path is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Every aspect of this path should be something positive, a positive kind of experience. That is when you're doing it in the right way. And too often the instructions are too simplistic to really enable us to understand that in the right way. So, <clears throat> discuss the teaching or keep noble silence. And then the Buddha carries on and he says, Mendicants, there are these two searches, the noble search and the ignoble search. So, mendicants, this is the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. Yeah? And uh, men a mendicant in English literally means someone who lives on arms. That's what it means. So it's a very appropriate word. The word bhikkhu and bhikkhuni also means exactly that. So it's actually a very 
direct translation, although the word mendicant is a bit archaic, it's not something that you hear the average Australian saying in the daily life, uh, uh, <laughs> or anyone probably wouldn't say that, uh, but uh, it is actually appropriate in this context. Uh, so again, you have this idea of the noble search and the ignoble search, the search that actually takes you somewhere and the search that doesn't. Uh, and uh, as usual, the Buddha will start off by talking about the ignoble search. We get the bad side out of the way, then we can focus on the noble search afterwards. What is the ignoble search? It is when someone who is themselves liable to be reborn seeks what is also liable to be reborn. Themselves liable to grow old, fall sick, die, sorrow, and become corrupted. They seek what is also liable to these things. Yeah, so the idea here is that there is a problem in the world. These are the problems of the world that the Buddha to be is, or the Buddha is listing here. And there is already an issue, an issue which is not comfortable, an issue that really we should deal with. And instead of dealing with that issue, we compound the problem by seeking out other things that have exactly the same problem. Yeah, so, so this is kind of why it is called ignoble, because we're not actually solving anything. We're making the situation worse. And uh, so this is the problem. You are already liable to be reborn. Yeah? And uh, being reborn, well, that is perhaps a problem. Perhaps it's not. I don't know what you think. I know what you think, actually, because you're all Buddhist. You have been brainwashed to think that rebirth is bad. So you know it's bad already. But many people think rebirth is good. Yeah, they think, yeah, rebirth, great, right? Because if I get reborn, I can carry on with my spiritual path, yeah? Don't have to give up things too easily. I can learn from my mistakes, yeah? I don't have to become annihilated, yeah? Because annihilation sounds terrible as I get reborn. can live in the heavenly realm if I do things right. Yeah, sounds pretty good. So rebirth is good. That's kind of what most people think. But the Buddha already here has this idea that rebirth actually is really problematic, yeah? And uh, so this is kind of interesting. I'll come back to this later on as we go down, come down to the Buddha talking about his own practice. But you can get this feeling here that rebirth is already seen as a problem by the Buddha to be here, even before his awakening here. And that's kind of interesting because you wonder how could he see that as a problem if he didn't even know about rebirth yet. And we'll discuss that in a, in a minute just to because it's a fascinating thing. So all of these things here are problems, uh, and we should not seek them because we are compounding them. Uh, And then uh, let's go into the discussion of these things in a bit more detail. What should be described as liable to be reborn? Partners and children, uh, male and female bond servants, uh, goats and sheep, uh, chickens and pigs, uh, Elephants and cattle are liable to be reborn. These attachments or possessions are liable to be reborn. Someone who is tied, infatuated and attached to such things, themselves liable to be reborn, seeks what is also liable to be reborn. So all of these things are living beings, partners and children, Uh, And because they are all living beings, then according to the Buddhist ideas of how the world works, they are liable to be reborn, right? They will carry on into the future. And so if rebirth is a problem, then you are just clinging on to other things that also have the same kind of problem. You're not really getting anywhere. So partner and children, this just means, uh, you know, your wife or husband or whatever it, it, it may be and all the children you might have. Uh, Obviously, that is the biggest of all problems uh, because these are the people that we attach most to. But it doesn't end there. It is also, interestingly here, male and female bond servants. Bond servants are like slaves. uh, But bond servants is a more kind word than slave. A slave sounds really harsh. Bond servant is like, okay, they they have a bond to you, but they're not really treated as badly. uh. Yes, that's kind of... uh, isn't that kind of sweet? Yeah, you are worried about the, the happiness of your slaves. Yeah, oh, my slaves are going to get reborn. Oh, no. Yeah, my slaves are going to die. Oh, that's terrible. 
you have a kind of relationship with these people, yeah, whereby you see their suffering, you see their life. And that's sort of a, a nice way of thinking about you know, people who are working in your house, your servants or whatever, whoever is actually there. You have a kind of connection with them. You feel a sense of heart connection with them. You have a warm-hearted feeling. These are human beings just like you with the same kind of suffering. That's already a beautiful little touch right there in that sutta. It's not someone you look down upon just because they have a lower social status. But no, you see them as human beings, just like yourself. You don't have any arrogance towards other people, regardless of the status in the world. Male and female bond servants. And then you have all the animals, right? <coughs> Starting with goats and sheep and chickens and pigs, elephants and cattle. And, of course, you are concerned about the animals as well. Not only are you concerned about them because they are living beings, but also because you happen to own them as well. These were signs of wealth in the uh, days of the Buddha. People who had a lot of these things were wealthy people. And so your wealth yeah, is, is uh, liable to be reborn. And for that reason, death and all this cyclic existence going on and on, and it's all very uncertain and uh, so these are the things that you attach to, right? These attachments. The Pali word is upadi. Upadi is like things that you possess, possessions. Ownership is what upadi is about. So you own <coughs> kind of these things. You own your partner and children. That's what we think anyway. Of course we don't, but that's kind of how it feels like very often. We have a sense of ownership over these things. And certainly the animals are things that we own or we think that we own her. And um, being tied, infatuated, and attached to such things, uh, yeah, that is what it means to seek what is liable to be reborn. Uh. Because we think we own them, uh, we are attached to them. Uh, yeah, we are tied to them. We are infatuated with them. Uh. In other words, we have this bond and desires and cravings in regard to all of these kind of things. And because we have attachments and desire and cravings, we are seeking something in those things. We're seeking happiness in those things. We're seeking stability. We're seeking some kind of safety in those things. Right? This is what it means to be attached to something, that you are seeking something in that person or in those animals. We're seeking to make our life meaningful through our relationship and bond and attachment to these things. And that is very problematic. If, it is, if these things are going to be reborn and they're going to carry on in samsaric existence, going round and round, that attachment is always going to be challenged. It is very problematic to be attached in this world. This is a very profound insight. It is a very profound because we have a tendency to actually enjoy attachment. We have a tendency to always want to attach. We find a wife or a husband for ourselves. Then we have children. And the attachment always comes in these kind of relationships. And we don't see the downside. I told you this retreat was going to be challenging. here. <laughs> so... But this is such an important thing, and sometimes you get a glimpse of the danger of those attachments. I'm sure that all, all of you have had that feeling of someone dying in your life. Yeah? I've had close family members dying. Yeah? At that time, your, your attachments really get challenged. What does it feel like when someone very close to you dies? It can be incredibly painful, especially if they're very close to you. It can be really, really hard to deal with. You know at that point the danger of attachment. And actually, if you are aware, if you have the Buddhist teachings at the back of your mind when these things happen, uh, actually, it is a great opportunity to open your eyes to what life really is like. Uh, and you become almost, uh, you almost get a sense of um, revulsion or aversion to attachment at that point because you understand fully what is going on and you see the danger in these things. Uh, and then, of course, later on, you forget it again. But uh, <coughs> that is often an opportunity to see what is going on. Huh? Attachments are scary, huh? and they always lead to problems down the track. Yeah? The Buddha has this beautiful uh, <coughs> similes for what are the sensory things in the world. Uh, yeah? The uh, sense objects in the world, these are the similes for what it means, the, uh, the karma chanda, the desire for the sens sensory things of the world. Uh, and it says that if you enjoy too much in the sensory world, you are incurring a debt. 
Yeah, and that that of course is precisely the attachment you have to those things in that sensory world. Uh, those attachments are going to be challenged, uh, and when they are challenged, you can feel that you're incurring that debt. Now you have to pay it back. Uh, you're paying back the joy and the happiness of that relationship down the track. It's always going to end in suffering as a consequence. Uh, so. Just saying that may sound very depressing to you, right? Because you may think, oh, that means, you know, maybe I have a problem or maybe you think that, okay, I better get a divorce now or whatever. No, <laughs> that's the wrong, that is actually not the right answer. Don't get a divorce, uh, but change your attitude to that relationship that you have. Because the answer to that problem of attachment and all the kind of things that come from that, the answer is not that you become a monk or a nun and you kind of give up the world straight away. No, that's not really the answer. The answer, rather, is that you turn towards the spiritual path. That is the answer in whatever capacity you have to turn towards that. Of course, you can become a monk or a nun, that's fine, but that is not really the initial impetus. The initial impetus from seeing this is that you start to move in a different direction. You start to understand the danger. When you start to understand, okay, what is the consequences of seeing that danger? The consequences are practicing the spiritual life, <clears throat> making yourself more independent of this five-sense world, at the very least living to the best of your ability with kindness, with care, with understanding for the world around you. And as you live like that, actually your heart already starts to become released to some extent from the world around you. And then that release from the world becomes even more powerful in your meditation practice. Because meditation practice actually, as I said yesterday, is a kind of renunciation, a kind of giving up. Because when you are peaceful within, you have given up the world outside to some extent. So that is the answer. So when I say these things, please don't despair. Because the whole purpose of looking at the world in this way is to find a solution to these things. And the solution is always found on the spiritual path. Yeah. So if you feel that it is despairing, the things that I have to say here, then uh, um, listen to the other side of the equation. Uh, if you feel it is despairing, don't go too far down that path because then the life becomes terrible. Uh, but see the other side. And when you see the other side, hope comes about. Uh, the candle is lit. Uh, there is an alternative. Uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel, as they say. Uh, yeah. And then you are on the right track. Yeah. So um, this is the answer to this question. And this is why this is right view from the Buddha's point of view. It is right view because it makes the Buddha to be himself go forth from the ordinary life into homelessness. He understands very deeply the problem of attachment. Okay, give it all up. Time to go forth. Time to practice this path fully. This is what it means, right view. Right view enables the spiritual practice to happen. It enables the Noble Eightfold Path to unfold. Without that right view, nothing happens at all. So that is the uh, idea of rebirth right there at the very beginning. Here. And one of the kind of interesting things you will notice that the next things we're going to talk about is old age, illness, death, sorrow, and all of these kind of things. And it's interesting that it begins with rebirth, right? Why does it begin with rebirth? Shouldn't it begin with old age, then death, then rebirth? Isn't that the right sequence? Surely we, first of all, we die. You have to die before you can be reborn. How can it possibly start out with rebirth? What's the Buddha doing here? How come? There's always a purpose for the for the sequence of things. If the Buddha starts with the rebirth, there is a reason for that. It's not random. Yeah. So why does he start with the rebirth? And then you go to the Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta and you look at the instructions or the way the Buddha talks about the first noble truth. How does he talk about the first noble truth? Well, Jati Piduka. Yeah, that's the first first one. Then you have what I can't remember the sequence. Jada piduka, viadi piduka, maranam pidukang. First of all, birth or rebirth is is dukkha is suffering. Then old age is suffering. Then illness is suffering. Then death is suffering. Then being separated from what you like, etc., is suffering. That too begins with birth. Actually, the proper translation is rebirth, not birth. 
This is one of the interesting things here. Jati is the Pali word here, usually translated as birth, but actually it should really be translated as rebirth. And the reason is because we are trying to overcome suffering here. And the only birth you can overcome is future birth. You cannot overcome the birth we already had. So it must refer to rebirth. Very important point. And for that reason, I applaud Bhante Sujato for translating as rebirth rather than birth. And so the point here, yeah, and this is kind of the point, is that all of these things, the problem is not so much that we're going to die. The problem is that we're going to re-die in the future. We're going to re-get old. We're going to get re-get sick. We're going to re-sorrow. We're going to get re-corrupted again and again and again. And that is why rebirth here is at the head of everything else, because it is this cyclic going on potentially forever that is the real problem. If we're only going to die once, actually, it's not such a big deal, right? I don't know what you think, but difficult enough already for most people. But if it is only once, actually, that's the end of the story in kind of your business and everything is fine. But it is the redoing of these things that is the problem. And that is why rebirth always starts first, then comes these other qualities afterwards. So we, from maybe we should start translating Madonna as re-death. That would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? We, would, I mean, we have to be a bit inventive and imaginative in our translation of the suttas. And it kind of it makes an interesting point. At least occasionally we should translate like that, just to make that point. And then it becomes more fascinating. and It opens up your eyes to a different way of thinking about these things. Anyway. I have gone one minute over time. I think that is uh, forgivable. Will you forgive me for that? I hope you hope you will. If you can't forgive me that, you might have a problem actually. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you can. Uh, so uh, um, that is it for this morning. Uh, please carry on, enjoy your meditation. We have have a nice lunch at eleven o'clock, uh, and we're going to continue on with this marvelous sutta at two o'clock. So I hope to see you back here again at two o'clock. Uh, in the meantime, just let's pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.